All right. Good morning, everyone. Now that none of us care about the game anymore, we can focus on matters at hand, more important things, the enemy, my enemies, my brother, something, I don't know. Um, I'm going to ask a controversial question. It's not controversial because it's so um, outrageous. It's just the most obvious question that rarely gets asked in church. See, we're continuing our series in the book of Romans, and uh, we're dealing with the subject of sin. Now, the Bible deals with sin. As I mentioned before, we have 21 some odd words, 89 different usages of them, just to deal with the word sin. It's like Eskimos have 12 words to deal with snow. In English, we have one. Uh, Certain Native American tribes would have uh, 15 words for corn. We've got one. Well, the, the Bible deals with the condition of the human heart, all the ways we go sideways, all the games we play, all the layers. And, and the human heart is this, this, this dynamic of who we are in process, who we ultimately are before our maker and who we experience ourselves to be as we respond to that reality or, or away from it. And that's sort of the outworking, what we do in church. So... We're going to be in Romans 6, uh, starting with verse 1. But before we get there, let me ask this question. Who here as a believer? So lots of you might be by seeking God, and you're hanging out, or you're not sure, agnostic. That's great. Glad you're here checking it out. But for those who've called upon Christ as their Savior, I'm broken, I need God, I need His forgiveness, I am separated from my Maker, and the only bridge is Jesus Christ. Those who've made that journey, we're believers, how many people still sin? Wow! Man, what are we doing here? It doesn't work! It doesn't work! Okay, again, Christians, sinners, Is there anyone here who came to Christ and no longer sins? Has not sinned since coming to Christ? Jesus in the house? Anyone? Okay, I was going to be really awkward conversation, so I'm glad no one, no one went there. This is something we get, and just in case we don't see it, God's pretty clear. Uh, 1 John puts it this way. If we claim to be, this is a letter written just to Christians, by the way. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. My hope, amen, glory. That's awesome. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his words not in us. And so we get, we we still deal with sin. Sin is not something that goes away once we make a commitment to Christ. And if we're honest, we'd say it gets drawn into more sharp focus. Not just what sin is, not just where it has taken root in our lives, but how much we formed our identity in sin. How much we still lean on it where we go to feel complete, to feel whole, to feel engaged. You see, before Christ, that's sort of a savior-sized hole we're trying to fill. Nothing really works. But after Christ, even with that wholeness enjoined, we, we have a lot of programming we got to work through. And this is what we're going to look at in Scripture, why the believer still struggles with sin. Okay? Um, don't worry. You'll have the rest of your lives to work this out. Okay? So, so this isn't just a, a one and done. Very simple question. If we've been freed from sin, why do we still sin? 
There's a reason we've been free. There's a reason we said this is hurting me. This is bad. It's death. I want life. I turn. That's a fancy word for repent. I turn and I go the other direction. Well, having made that break, recognizing to some extent the cost, what Christ did to bring us into that relationship, why do we still go to our go-to? Okay, we're going to, um, I thought it might be helpful because we're kind of kind of hacking our way through Romans here, just to back up a little bit, find where we are on the map, get some context, and then we're going to jump into the sermon, okay, just to, to see where we are in the book. So Romans 5 to 8 deals specifically with our salvation and deals with the fullness of our salvation past, present, future. Now, in the ancient world, there's a way of writing, a way of arguing. It's called chiastic, which means you sort of make a point, and you make another point, and you make another point, and then you do the mirror image to kind of back out of the argument, and you make the same points going out. And people were used to talking that way, thinking that way. We're not. But, but when you see that in Scripture, when, it, when it's a huge thing, um, it's very deliberate, and it's sort of a way of saying, pay attention. The, the author, Holy Spirit and human author, put a lot of work in, into making this point. We have this massive structure between Romans 5 and Romans 8. It's this thing called this, this, this chiasm. It's one thought, and it deals with salvation. Now, where we run into trouble is we're only dealing with one-tenth of our salvation. I've been saved from sin. Why do I still sin? It doesn't make sense. Well, when we look at all the tenses of salvation. In other words, our salvation is too big for anyone to get their arms around. And so the Bible talks about it in different ways. All those ways are brought up between Romans 5 and 8. So Romans 5 to 11, we will be saved from the presence of sin. It deals with the future tense of our salvation. There's still sin in this world. God will make it a right. But in the meanwhile, this is how we deal with it. So it's a future hope. Uh, Romans uh, 5, uh, 12 to 21, we um, have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's the category. This is what Christ did. It's done. It ain't going to change. And it's either this is our reality or we're not. Past tense. Romans 6, we're being saved from the power of sin. So we're going to look at today. Present tense. How do we deal, not when God comes back and deals with everything and makes the world all right, not what Christ did way, way ago and it applies to me, but my life here and now. There is a battle for our minds, for our hearts. The power of sin is the power to entice, the power to lead away, the power to rob. And so it's which is most important to us? What's most valuable? Who do we see ourselves to be? That's what we act out of. Do we act out of a nature programmed in, in sin in the world? Or do we act out of a new nature in Christ? The answer is, a lot of the time we act out of the old nature. And that's what this sermon's going to be about. Next week, uh, this is kind of back and back out. It's still the present tense. We're being saved from the power of the law. And so we're going to look at the difference of when God says no, why does that suddenly get us all freaked out versus just the outworking of sin in our life? Past tense, saved from the penalty of sin, and then future tense. Okay? So that's, that's all the tenses of salvation and all the effects of salvation. Again, super simple. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's my standing before God. That's not going to change. It's based on Christ alone. I am right now being saved from the power of sin. A blunt way of saying it, God has my soul. He wants my heart and my mind. He wants me to want him. Okay, He wants me to see him as he truly is and choose amongst a thousand different options how I conduct my life, 
where my value is and the cost I'm willing to pay. And then we will be saved in the future when God returns, sets this world aright, and it's, it's over, and it's final judgment, and, and we're into the, into the new heavens and the new earth. It's all right there. A little bit confusing. We're focusing on this one right now. Being saved from the power of sin. Our lives right now, up close and personal, why we do what we do. Okay? So this week, why do we sin as Christians? Next week, what happens to us when we do? All right. Jumping in here. Now, what was the, what was the last big verse from last week? Anyone remember? No, seriously, anyone remember? Because I was supposed to mention it, and I got it written down. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That's huge. Wait a minute. God's response to bad things is he just rolls over. He doesn't give us what we deserve. That creates a whole bunch of problems. So this next part that we're going to look at is an answer to that. See, the problem is this. If I've been forgiven of all my sins, past, present, future. In other words, Christ on the cross. It wasn't six hours of body piercing that I required. You know, my sins were far more heinous than just some flogging and some crucifixion. And as I mentioned before, the two thieves on either side of Jesus, they suffered more than Christ because they took longer to die. They had to have their legs broken. Christ died in six hours. So they suffered more physically. But the issue wasn't a body being ripped apart by man and hung on a tree. That was, um, as I mentioned earlier, that was simply man, what man does with God's offer of love. We chew it up and throw it back to him. But where the grace happened is what occurred in the heavenlies. The real sin that I did my whole life, yesterday, today, tomorrow, that is real guilt, that was a real wall between me and God. That was dealt with in Christ. It was my equivalent punishment in eternity in hell placed upon Christ. Infinite God could take that punishment for me and for you, for you, for everyone who calls upon him. That's what Christ was talking about in Gethsemane when he said, Lord, if it be your will, let this cut pass. He wasn't looking at the cat of nine tails. He wasn't looking at the hammer and the nail and, and the dogward cross. He was looking at an eternity in hell that I deserve to spend for my sin. That's pure justice. He was taking that exact punishment on himself, an equivalent. As infinite God, I don't know what that is. I'm sure glad I didn't have to do it. He did that for everyone. So he looked, in essence, outside of time on the cross, he looked at Bill, 1966 birthday, right? He looked at right now, he looked at when I die, that full quantity of sin, he really dealt with that sin. That is done. If that is true, I have been forgiven of all of my sins in the past, all of my sins in the present, and all of my sins yet to be committed in the future, then that means now in Christ I can sin freely and it doesn't affect my status in Christ. And you know what? That's absolutely true. That is the scandal of grace. But we're only talking about the past tense of our salvation, our standing because of what Christ did irrespective of me other than my response. And so that's, that in a nutshell creates this problem. It's only when we look at the other two tenses that we see where sin really is much more than just what we can get away with. See, where people went with this verse is if more sin brings more grace and grace is a good thing, how do we get more grace? More sin. 
And, and this is throughout the church called antinomianism. Um, no law. Christ has fulfilled the law. He did everything we ever needed to do already. So we're off the hook. Party time. And a lot of people went there. You know, I mentioned Rasputin. Um, he said, well, if, if you sin and you're forgiven and you receive grace, that's a good thing. The more you sin, the more forgiveness, the more grace. So if you constantly sin in the most heinous way possible, you can be forgiven in the most gracious way possible. So he called his bedchamber the Holy of Holies. And most of the Russian nobility uh, women knew that place very well. Where sin abounded, grace would increase. That's a perversion of the gospel. And so Paul answers Rasputin and all the inclinations of our heart of seeing where we are that way. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Incidentally, where it says by no means, one of the worst translations in scripture. It's much stronger. Um, I'm, the, the best translation I heard was actually from a, a, a professor at Dallas. Uh, not exactly a liberal bastion of theology, if you're familiar with Dallas Theological. Um, and his best translation was this. Hell no! That's really, really close to what Paul means there. What shall we say then? Shall we keep on sinning so we can get more grace? Hell no! What are you thinking? And yes, I mentioned hell because that, that's what we're, this whole thing is about. We are those who have died to sin. Past tense, died, dead. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him. Notice the the finality. Buried, crucified, dead. Past tense, done. Buried with him through baptism into, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Live. A new life. If we have been united with him in a death like his, final, ultimate, once for all, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like him, continuous, empowered, living, real. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Okay, dead to sin, it's this one-time thing that Christ did. We're going to talk about that in just a bit. When it talks about how can we who died to sin still live in it, it simply means the choices we make in this life. Where our value system is, what's most important. Do you not know? Are, are you ignorant of the fact that, and he goes on to talk about salvation. Now, Romans is a letter to pretty mature believers. This is a summary of salvation. This is basically Paul saying, this is the whole gospel, and this is what I want to take to the rest of the world. What do you guys think? Laying it out there. But he says, do you not know? Why would we as believers not know of this fact? I think in our head we all get it. But yet we don't in our, the outworking of our lives. And, and Paul recognizes this. I think for us in these days, every generation has their own disease, but, but in our time and place, it's difficult because it's so easy to become a Christian. It's the hardest thing in the world because of the pride of our heart. But, but once, once we can get past that, saying yes to Jesus is very easy because it doesn't cost us anything initially. 
Uh, we aren't persecuted. Sure, you might be looked down upon, you might lose some friends, whatnot, and that, that's hard. But that's very different from having molten lead poured over you like in North Korea for being a Christian. Um, and so the consequences of choosing Christ are deferred. They're delayed. It's very, very easy. In fact, too easy because it's been paid in full already. But the more we walk with Christ and the more value we see in that, we appreciate the full value of the cost of our salvation, and we're willing to invest, we're willing to sacrifice, we're willing to pay the cost, not to earn it, but in recognition of that value. These are all long-term, life-type things. When we're being assaulted by the immediate, what are we going to do? Where do we get our pleasure? Where do we get our security? How do we uh, make a name for ourselves? How do we defend? These longer-term things really take, take back seat. Real quick, he said, all of us who've been baptized into Christ. For Paul, that's a baptism is shorthand for all of salvation. Baptism is not where salvation takes place, but it's not merely symbolic either. See, for Paul, baptism was a sense of this is where you publicly say, this is the reality. I'm taking a stand for Christ no matter what happens. And you're recognized by a community. You're recognized by the world for making a break. You're recognizing by the church community. See, in Paul's day, it was unfathomable that there could be an unbaptized believer. If you're believed, you say, it's, it's, this is going to cost me. I've considered it. I've given my life to Christ. I stand up. I'm one of them now. I, I've crossed over. But you're recognized and engrafted into a community where you're supported, where you're challenged, where you're not lone rangers. That's not the reality for us here and now. And that's why it's so precarious. One, because the ease of grace... And it doesn't cost us up front in this culture and this time too much. And then secondly, because uh, we're, we're lone rangers and squirrels. And so what, what Paul could say was there's this immediate identification with a community and it's game on and we're going to be attacked and we're in. Those things really are less true for us and so we struggle more. Okay, this section here talked about this decisive transfer that happened. We all fell when Adam fell. We looked at that. That was the first four, three, for sure, uh, chapters of this book. That the sin that Adam and Eve did, our forebears, however you want to understand that, that tainted and poisoned, it irradiated us, and everything downstream from that was affected, was mutated with sin. And that's, that's the life that we're born into. But just as unfair and total as that was, when Christ died, Anyone who claims that for themselves, that person has made a break with sin, made a break with judgment, and is a new person. Paul goes on to talk about, in the same way that there's this immediate break, there's a continuation. What is the biggest break we can imagine happening? The biggest life event where there is just what was old is completely that's past, and what's new is completely different. The biggest thing we can imagine. Divorce, that's a break. Absolutely, that, that is a big change. Others? Death. death? Yeah. Is there, is there a stronger one than death? Pardon? Going to heaven is certainly a huge break, and that's the goodie, but we'll, we'll throw that into the death category in terms of we experience it. You're alive or you're dead, one of the two, and, and which category you're in. There's no bigger break in life than death. Paul says, uh, regarding marriage, there's lots the Bible says about it, and wherever anyone goes on everything, we all agree death is the final break. Boom. The law, the law holds all sorts of stuff over us, but when somebody dies, we don't arrest them. 
And we arrested the corpse and we had him and stood him up in the thing and we tried him. Now, when you're dead, you're dead. There's a break. It doesn't, the rules no longer hold sway over you. And that's the exact thing that Paul couches this in. He's saying, so decisive was your break with sin, it is as though you died. That you got resurrected on a, in a completely new everything. But it just looks awfully, awfully familiar. And that's the problem. See, the life we live is overlaid with the life we knew. And the question that God's asking is, this is the reality. This is the gospel in your head. But how's it playing out in the rest of your life? Are you feeling it? Is it working for you? Is it real? I didn't say, is it easy? I didn't say, is it pleasant? I didn't say, is it everything that you want it to have happen? But is there a quality? Is there an engagement? Is there a hope that transcends anything and everything that might be holding us down now? So in answer to that question, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more, shall we continue to sin? See, we have to deal with the present tense of our salvation. If, to some extent, that every sin that I commit in this life has to be dealt with by Christ, then there's something seriously sick with me that I recklessly sin under the free pass of grace, knowing that that reality is I am literally causing more suffering for Christ. In order for him to redeem me, it is more pain that he has to, more punishment that he has to receive. Secondly, it hurts God now. I'm disconnected from my relationship. Disconnected from my relationship with him. And so if I'm only focusing on where do I stand before God and what can I get away with, we have missed out on almost the entire package. One of the main struggles with marriage counseling is getting one or both of of the parties to recognize where they're thinking, where they're feeling is as that of a single versus that of a married couple. You see, up until we're married, we spend our entire lives acting like a single, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. You're responsible for you. You've got to take care of you, and you build your life so that you, take, you do you. Your needs, your security, your wants, your identity, your, your whatever. Putting two very selfish people together in marriage, whose idea was that? Man, I've got to talk to him about that. Um, see what the problem is. Both parties are still used to thinking like singles and still operating out of that, but the reality is radically different. See, the, the, what the Bible tells us, Ephesians 5, is you're now one flesh. You're no longer your own. There is somebody else that has authority over you, and you have authority over someone else. There's this, this reciprocity. There's this, this mutuality, this beautiful uh, synergy coming together, and it is not going to work if you're thinking like a single. So much so that at the end of the lecture, Paul's given the men in this, he says, the dude who gets it has figured it out. Notice, if you love your wife, you love your own body. However you want to care for yourself, you care for your wife, you're going to care for yourself much more. Then Paul goes on to say, really, I'm talking about Christ in the church. Right? 532. This mystery is deep between a man and a woman, and it is. Believe me, it is. But he's really talking about Christ in the church. See, where I want to run into most problems in our marriage is I'm still thinking like a single. I'm still being selfish. I'm not considering others. And, and we can work that out. There, there's great healing. There's, there's great grace. So much more so in the body of Christ that we're still thinking like sinners. We're still thinking like people apart from Christ where we're on our own. And we got to do it for ourselves our way and the way it works or no one else is going to cover it for us. So we go into this marriage, this covenant, this relationship with God, this mystery that's deep, and we're still thinking like singles, so to speak. 
And that's where we run afoul. Continuing. Now, if we died with Christ, if we came to Christ, if we've accepted Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. When does that life start? In heaven? Immediately. That's why it's called eternal life, right? For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. Okay, the whole, whole, all the Romans was leading up to this. But the life he now lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Okay, gets a little bit, little bit funky here. Simply because we've, we're about 400 years past the King James translation. It's messed us up. Um, there's a word translated flesh, meat, body, all sorts of things, sarch. And it just basically means the body. But it's used all, many different ways in scripture. Well, this is one of Paul's favorite words to use the body as referring to our old way of thinking. As a single, if you would. As a sinner before the, the marriage to Christ. Uh, our way of, of conducting life, he refers to it as the flesh or the body. And, and he uses this word. Um, but the problem is we translate it in really unhelpful ways. You see, it's translated sin nature, but the word nature is almost never used in the Bible. And when it is used in, in, in even in Romans, it's, it's never used in this context. So that's a bad translation because if we think I had this old sin nature and, and then, and then I come to Christ, this is a really whacked way of looking at our faith. It really is because it's not that we got a new nature replacing the old nature. Like, like it's just kicked one out and new ones in. That's not true. It's not like we got a new nature engrafted into like this Frankenstein monster of Siamese twin hybrid of we've got, and then we've got, you know, respectable Jesus. And, you know, we're trying to, you know, go along as Christians. I got the evil part and I got the good part. You thought the shoulder and the devil angel was difficult. This, this this is crazy. That is not what salvation is. We are one person. We are only one person. We will only be one person how and where that's going to take place in eternity, that, that's what's being worked out now. But we're one person. God is one. We're one. Now, we oscillate all the time based on, uh, on the, the friends we're with, the hits we're taking in life, how we see ourselves. Do we see ourselves through the lens of work, through others, relationship, accomplishment? Doesn't matter. But regardless of how we may think about ourselves with a million hats or identities or, or a billion Instagram friends, whatever, we're one person. There's only one person that God loves, and that's you. That's you, the you that nobody else sees. The you that you keep locked close inside. The you that you are horrified, aspects of which, and if you could just hold them under the water long enough, maybe God will baptize those things too, or drown them at least. That's the only person God loves. God did not die for the Christian projection that we have. God did not die for the dressed up, nice, happy faces I'm seeing in front of you. God died for where we hurt, where we're broken, where we bleed, where we hate, where we rage, where we love, where we're impassioned, where we're emboldened, where we reach out, where we're vulnerable, our real selves. That's the one that he's in the business of, of, of transforming and, and, and working through. If we have this understanding of this natures and battle of the natures and old self and we're not resolved, we're going to be fighting the wrong enemy. Because here's the, here's the, um, Here's the thing. When I read about myself, a Christian, being described as sinful flesh, I'm at war with myself, not the enemy. 
I'm at war with the one that God has redeemed and loves. I'm not the enemy. And that either makes God the enemy or me the enemy or, or we're allied somehow, or allied with Satan. You know, if I read that, that we've got to crucify the flesh and I've got to put to death any deed in the body and all of this, if I'm understanding it as part of my flesh, part of my being, part of who I am, where, where, where's the sin I've got to crucify? Is it here? Is it here? Is it here? Where, what part of me do I hate and what part of me do I love? Do I hate my mind and love my body? Do I hate my body and love my mind? And, and the church is just divided over this. It's so much better, so much easier, so much more straightforward to translate it as it's intended. And I think the best translation is old sin identity. The way we thought as sinners. The way that we were pressed into the mold of the world. We go with the grain of the world. So when we go with that grain, it works. When we go against the grain, ah, I get splinters. Okay, that is the best way to translate this. The body of sin, our old sin identity. How many people have been in a power outage? Really? Yeah. Now, the power's out, and you think, oh, oh, blew a fuse. And you open up the windows, and you see if the neighbors are hosed, right? And then there's that schadenfreude that kicks in. Ah, right, the whole neighborhood's hosed, yeah. Or, or, you know, it's an entire blackout. So at least, one, you don't have to be the person to call, because surely somebody would have called it in by now. And two, you know it's a blackout. What's the next thing you do? Start looking for lights, right? What do you do when you walk in a room? During a power outage, you put, you turn on the light. Why do you turn on the light switch? You know there's no power. It's the stupidest thing you can do. It's a waste of time. You, you can, you can get into, you know, why do we do, but we still do that, right? How many power outs have you been in? Did you not flip the light switch on in the last power out? Why? Because we're so ingrained, our behavior, every time we walk in a room in the dark, we flip on the light switch and the light comes on, that even when we know all the rules have changed, we still operate by the same procedure. Um, I, I lived in this shed in Austria, long story, but anyway, uh, with, with another roommate, no heating, no insulation, nothing. And so we finally, we got this barrel and we put diesel in it and set it on fire for the night. It's the only source of heat we had. It, I know, it explains a lot with oxygen and blood cell, and, you know, killing brain cells and that, which you can see. But that was our source of heat, and, and we take turns of, uh, as we got a screaming headache and were woken up from the anoxia, we could then refill the diesel and we'd stay warm all night. And so for six months, uh, you know, with snow and stuff, we got used to this, and this is just the way it went. Well, our, our team leader found out about this, and he's horrified, and how could you do this, and you're going to kill everybody, and so they got rid of the diesel thing, and they got us a nice little electric heater, put it in the room. It was a short cord, and the only place it could go was right in the middle of the room. Guess what I did for six months? Um, I was known as Zebra on the team because I had these grill marks across my legs because I would get up to refill the diesel on autopilot, and I'd walk right into this just red-hot radiator every single night in my shorts. And it didn't matter how many times I got burned and I'd fall over it, and then I'd be on it like a griddle and rolling around, my roommates laughing, and everyone's up. I kept doing the same thing. Why? Because the old way of operating was just that 
hardcore ingrained in me. And not even the immediate pain could dissuade me from doing the next thing. Do you see where I'm going with this? Do you see where the old sin nature? It's not a matter of knowledge. It's not a matter of just reading we shouldn't do this. We need to recognize how much we have been ingrained in this world. How much we have this sin identity. And that's where the power battle is. See, something else real quick before we're moving on very quickly said that Christ died so that we should no longer be a slave to sin. Didn't say Christ died so that we should no longer be a slave. Didn't say that he just let the hamsters out of the cage and they all just went running off from the field into the sunset. Uh, We're not just freed. We've been transferred to a new master. One who really owns us, really loves us, really knows the best. The one who has our ultimate best in mind and the power to, to make it happen. So we are under the realm of Christ. It's we just have a really hard time not seeing him as our old master. The already and not yet. Moving on. Um, do you know, you, you guys are probably familiar with stories um, after the slaves were freed. Okay, there was the decree, Emancipation Proclamation, really didn't mean a whole lot for a few years. Uh, and then um, after Civil War, slaves were freed. There were a lot of slaves that did not want to be freed. They were so accustomed to living as slaves, they didn't know what it was like not to be a slave. And they went back and voluntarily served as slaves under their master, 1870s, 1880s. Um, That's what we do with sin. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Sin shall no longer be master because you're not under law, but under grace. Okay, he's not saying here sin is no longer your master. That's past tense. That's a fact. That's done. But the way in which we're behaving, it's just, just like those slaves, that sin is still our master even though we are under grace. Commands not to give lip service to an abstract truth, but to actively lay hold of this reality in our lives. And it's interesting, he uses the battleground as our mortal bodies. Mortal bodies really is where we see the outworking of, of what's going on up here. What, what battle is being fought, what conclusions are drawn, and, and what, what are we operating under? Are we still living as a single or, or under sin, a me first mentality, the old nature? We're going to see that worked out in how we use our bodies, how we use our abilities, how we use our time and our talents, how we use the, the very hands and eyes and, and tongue that God has given us. Are, are we using it for, only for ourselves? Or for others. And so Paul just lays it out here saying, look at your lives, look how you're using them, and recognize this. The word that's translated uh, instruments of righteousness, the actual word is weapon. It's a weapon of righteousness. There's a battle for our hearts, for our minds, and those of others. Are we acquiescing and just saying, I'm going to lay down my arms and not do anything? Or are we still using them, but in the old way? Or do we recognize just how much God wants to engage us in the battle? This is an illustration that I've I've not found a better one to uh, to explain why we do this. 1973, August 23rd, in downtown Stockholm, there's a large, large um, state bank. And a number of gunmen went in, and they held a whole bunch of people hostage. They let a number of the hostages go until there were only four left, three women, one man. And there was a, uh, their, their equivalent, SAPO, their equivalent of the SWAT, um, 
was uh, a standoff for about six days. When they released the captives, they found out that none of the captives actually wanted to be freed. Uh, They all defended their abductors in court, and a year later, two of the women actually got engaged to their um, abductors who are now serving their prison sentence. And, and so a whole bunch of people got together and like, what? What is going on with this? Uh, does this happen in other stress situations? Well, what they found was that this happens most of the time in traumatic situations. Whether you're a prisoner of war, whether you're a rape victim, whether it's kidnapping, whether there's a threat of a bombing. Uh, these situations where your, your safety is taken out of your hands completely. And it's traumatic, and, and, and uh, your life is not in your control. It's a survival mechanism that kicks in. It's a way that our bodies, uh, God has made our minds and our bodies to just deal with something that we cannot deal with in the moment. Um, with insane trauma, we have minds splitting apart, kind of DID. This, this is another way that we just do what we got to do to survive. And the mind warps itself in a perverse way around the very thing that is causing us the trauma and, and the harm. Anyone, virtually anyone can get what they later entitled Stockholm Syndrome, not not you guys, um, Stockholm Syndrome uh, because of this event, uh, and it's this. If there is a perceived threat to survival and the belief that one's captor is willing to act on that threat, the captive's perception of small kindnesses from the captor within a context of terror, isolation from perspectives other than those of the captor, perceived inability to escape. This is exactly what has happened to each of us living under the domain of sin, living under the domain of this world, living apart from God. Our lifeline cut off. We're on our own. We've gone our own ways. We're trying to do life the way we can best do life, and we've been ingrained in this world. It is a traumatic situation for our soul. This is not how we're designed to live. And so the exact same things happen. Perceived threat to survival, belief one's captors act. I need to do this to get mine, to feel good about myself, to build up my image, to get vengeance, to push my way forward. To, to I justify whatever I'm doing here because if I don't, this is going to happen. It's dependent upon me. Captors' perception of small kindnesses within a context of terror. We sin because it's fun, Right? How many people here really need prayer to keep from going out and smashing their fingers with a ball-peen hammer? Oh, I, just, I just so struggle with this. Nobody. But how many people are struggling with sin because there's a payoff at the other end of it, short or long? We all do. We sin because it's fun. This is what it is. Small perception of kindness within a context of terror. Isolation from perspectives other than those of the captor. It's me. We're lied to. Satan came to... Um, steal, kill, destroy, and and we've been lied to completely. God's not for you. He's gonna pull. He's gonna pull things away from you. It's difficult. This is you. You're dependent on yourself and yourself alone, and perceived inability to escape. No one gets out of this life alive. It's a traumatic situation that is at the same time all too familiar, and we don't recognize it. And so what has happened for each of us as believers, as much as for anyone else, we have this Stockholm Syndrome 
to sin, to the evil one. We have this survival mechanism where it's this, if not a a romantic um, inclination, it is an inclination nonetheless that this is who we really are. This is what really works. This is how life really obtains and what we need to do to get by. And it is ingrained emotionally. It's ingrained into the core of our soul. And that is why our present tense salvation is so important. Yes, absolutely. It begins, it ends with what Christ did on the cross. Done. That's, we're safe from the penalty of sin. But God doesn't want us to just spend our lives um, trapped in our cell. There's a short story I read about this person visiting a prison, and there's families and kids in there, and his heart goes out, and so he's getting blankets, and he's getting food, and he visits them every week, and he develops a relationship with another number of the other cellmates and families and that, and, and he's getting in an argument with one of them, and he pulls the door, and it comes open. He's like, what? This, the door's open. And the family said, well, of course they're open. All the cell doors are open. And he hears the story of generations ago, uh, the, the, the president or whatever gave a decree, and everyone was set free. But it was just too scary outside, and there wasn't enough food, and there wasn't enough jobs and work. And at least they got security, and they got money, and it was predictable. Their prison cell was predictable, so they stayed in. So generations of kids were then raised in the prison, and they knew the door was open, but nobody dared open it up. Okay, if, if we are claiming, number one, Christ died for me, I have been saved from all of my sins. We've claimed that the prison door is open. It's unlocked. It's ready to go. But this present tense, being saved from the the power of sin, our affections, that's the extent to which we open it up, step outside, get blinded by the light, and learn to live outside the prison. See, much of what is familiar to us in the world is still a prison. And that's why there's this conflict of, well, what is no longer, you know, I need and what do I need? How do I sort this out? How do I do things God's way? How do I live in a world that's all too familiar that has been my prison and now can be my playground and now can be the very place that I'd I'd, I'd want it to be? We're looking at one of them here and we're looking at the rest of them here. Most of the Bible deals with what we put off and what we put on. That we put on the old, we put on the new attitudes of Christ. We put on the heart. We put on the understanding. But it, in order to put on a coat, you gotta take off what you're wearing. We have to put off these attitudes. Put off these practices. Put off of this. And anyone who's read scripture would say, yeah, I get it. I could quote chapter and verse. It's familiar. I know where it is. But where do we practice it? We need to practice it in here. We need to practice it out there. We need to practice one another. And this is where the outworking gets difficult. Everything that Paul wrote was predicated on a church body that has come together, that has recognized the only way we're going to learn to live is free is with one another first and to practice it before, before we go out there. And that's the context in which he's working it out. That's not our context now. So one of the priorities that we're looking at this year and what we'd really like to establish and make so in very different contexts and ways that are going to work for everybody, it's community, it's discipleship. That we have community groups in different contexts where you are known, you are known by others, you are missed, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly is all thrown out there and we get to practice this. This is how it actually happens. If we're not doing this, it's not happening. 
and pathways of discipleship that we can work through. What is our understanding on the right page with God? Is the response of our hearts on the right page with God? Our understanding of how God's word and my life intersect and what works. This doesn't happen automatically. We come to Christ. If you're just hearing a sermon a week or a sermon in a Bible study a week, still not enough. Because we've been bombarded with an entire life that's been seared into us traumatically of the way we should be and it's familiar and it works. And then we're told about a different reality that, that's unfolding like a flower more and more, but certainly not the way and speed at which we'd want and which one's true. And so it's being absolutely sure what God says, how it works out, that we can trust him in our life and that we get to practice this. We get to work it out. You hear medical practice, right? This is Christian practice in the lives of one another. And then ultimately how God would hone us um, out there. And that's like four, four more sermons in Romans, so we're not even going to go there. We need community. We need one another. We need to practice this actively and work it out. What are the best marriages? The ones that are practiced. The ones where, where it is just continuously, there's the accountabilities. There's the recognition, the realization. This is where we go in our thinking. This is where we've gotten off the track. How much more so in the body of Christ? Okay, I'm going to shut up right now and we'll cut to the chase. Deacons, if you would be so kind to come forward, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we are celebrating all three tenses of God's salvation. Yes, we celebrate. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And we proclaim his death and resurrection until he comes again. This is the statement of faith that summarizes our communion. Christ has died. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. Christ will come again. What is not right in the world, God is setting that aright and he's using us. And in the present tense, we proclaim with our lips, with our members, with our lives, that reality because of Christ. So I would like for you to reflect in your hearts. If you are seeking Christ, if you're checking this out, it's a symbolic way that we need to remind ourselves it's about him and not about us. It's about his perfect finished work and not our imperfect work at present. And if you know Christ, allow him to speak in the quietness of your heart um, as as the worship band plays, um, business with him. Maybe you need to sort some some stuff stuff out. Just let it pass. That's fine. But however you want to respond, let God speak to you where you are in embracing the fullness, where you are in embracing the way of thinking, the mind of Christ, and where God wants to allow you to walk more as a free person, even though what's familiar in our life might look, look a little bit differently. Please, please distribute and we'll all partake together at the end. Thank you.
the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, and he gave thanks, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Every time that you eat of this, this you are doing in remembrance of me, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. After they had finished the Passover meal, Jesus took a cup, gave thanks, blessing it, saying, in this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of many sins. Every time that you drink of this, this you are doing in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. Thank you, Father. So great a salvation, so great a Savior, that it didn't end at the cross, but it began. New life in you, new life in us. And thank you for your commitment in helping us to walk out in fullness all that you have for us while we yet learn to cling more to you, to know you more, to be more known by you. Thank you we can walk in love because you live, because we are forgiven completely in you. In Christ's name, amen. Please pass your cups to the center. Thank you. Well, as we, well, before we officially close out our service, let's worship together one last time as we just ask the Lord, God, take all that I am, that uh, we would be free from sin. Take these hands I know they're empty But with you they can Be used for beauty In your perfect plan All I am is yours Take these feet I know they stumble But you use the weak You use the humble So please use me All I am is yours Sing it out. I give you all my life. I'm letting it go. A living sacrifice. No longer my own. All I am is yours. All I am is yours. Oh, take this time. Take this time. Set it on fire. 
Before we head out uh, this morning, a couple things. One, if you are in need of any kind of prayer this morning, we have some wonderful prayer counselors that would just love to pray with you, support you in that. And if it's a praise, that's great, too. We love that. So anyway, I'd like to invite our prayer counselors forward right now, and they'll meet with you right up here um, after the service and pray with you for as long as you need. And then also, maybe you've been coming to Bethel for two or three weeks now, and you're wondering a little bit about how do I get plugged in or what is this church really all about? We have something called the living room. It's in the couches right out there. Um, and if you'll go there right after service, 10, 15 minutes, some people would love to share with you just uh, how great our church is and how you can get plugged in. And uh, I am going to remember being a weapon of righteousness. Anyone else like that? It's, you know, it's not just cool. It's, it's so awesome to think about that we can be a weapon for God to use for righteousness sake. Alternatively, we could be a weapon for the other side too. I want to be a weapon of righteousness. So may we go in his power as we are realizing freedom from sin. Uh, Oh, and don't forget if you like to eat, join us for cafe afterwards. Awesome. Have a great day.